Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's, uh, let's pray together uh, before we come into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, how good it is to be together to worship your holy name, to be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us, of your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your might, and your power, uh, that you uh, would come on our behalf and that you would be with us here today. And so I pray that we we would recognize your presence in our midst today, that we would welcome your ministry to us as your Holy Spirit moves amongst us. Would we have ears to hear and eyes to see what it is that you want to reveal to us today? And we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Back when I was 17 years old, um, I was starting to take my faith a little bit more seriously. And so I got asked to help lead an Alpha discussion table group at the Lutheran Church. And if you don't know what Alpha is, Alpha is like a... um, If you don't know anything about Christianity, but you're curious about it, you go to Alpha, and we kind of teach the basics of Christian faith and allow for discussion. And I was 17 years old, and I was pretty nervous to be, you know, leading discussions or facilitating discussions with people who are skeptical about Christianity. But what put me at ease is I had two uh, older ladies who joined my table group, and they had been Christians for, I mean, literally their whole lives. They've been raised in the church, and they were, and I thought, okay, that's great. They just didn't want to lead, and they didn't know what Alpha was. They wanted to know what Alpha was about, but I thought, okay, this is great. I've got these two older, wiser saints who are going to help me lead this discussion. And, and for the most part, they were, they were really good at, at just sort of stewarding that conversation. Now, Alpha has been updated since I did it way back then, but I remember in one video, Nikki Gumbel, the main guy, was talking uh, a fair bit about Satan and evil powers. And so I was starting to get really nervous because I was pretty nervous to talk to skeptical people about Satan and evil powers. I was like, oh my goodness, like we're already trying to, you know, talk about some pretty pretty wild stuff and now we're going to bring Satan into it? Like this is not good. And so I was like, okay, okay, it's okay because I've got these two older ladies who have been really solid, like they're going to help me through this. So we come into the discussion table group after the video, and before I even start it, one of the ladies says, I have never believed that stuff about Satan and evil. I just believe in God. And the other lady was like, me too. I was like, whoa, like, what am I going to do now? Like, my two, like, rock-solid saints of the faith have now just sort of been like, yeah, we don't believe any of that stuff. I don't know, I was like, 17-year-old me going to be like, well, you're wrong, so, you know, that, that kind of just, the whole discussion went kind of sideways from there. And I was a little bit shocked, right? Because when I take an honest look at the world, I actually see a lot of evidence of evil. And I don't see as much evidence of good. And I would be more convinced that there's an evil power than a good power. And I was also shocked that, you know, two women who are so much older and wiser than me in the faith could so easily dismiss the biblical depictions of spiritual realities. That that there really is an evil being named by Jesus as Satan. But it does prompt a question for me. Do we need to believe in the spiritual realities that Scripture portrays? Is it necessary for our faith to recognize the reality of the spiritual world and and this evil being that is known as the devil or Satan. And so I was thinking about this, and, and the best answer I can come up with is this. 
that scripture certainly portrays to us a spiritual reality and a spiritual enemy. And although a, a be- lack of belief in, in that may not impact your saving faith in Jesus, to ignore scripture's consistent view that there is a spiritual enemy that seeks to destroy us and all of God's good creation is to leave ourselves unnecessarily weakened in our faith and open to deception that pulls our eyes away from Jesus. Because the reality that Scripture portrays is that there is a spiritual battle that's ongoing and we're not removed from it. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 is probably one of the New Testament's primary teachings on the nature of this battle. And we're just going to look at the beginning of that today, verses 10 through 12 in Ephesians chapter 6. This is the picture the Apostle Paul paints for us. He says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Ephesians 6 tells us that, you know, the very first instruction for us is this. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So the very first thing we realize is we cannot fight the spiritual battles with our own power. That's kind of the general command over all of this. Be strong in the Lord. Remember who you are. You are in Christ. Jesus has won the victory. And we've already seen in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are united with Christ. We are seated with Christ. We are sealed by his spirit. And if we are strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, the victory is ours. We don't need to fear Now, I think one of the questions that might come up is you might wonder, do I really need to fight this battle? Can't I just opt out? Like, can't I be like, I don't, I don't want any part of that. Like, I don't want to, I have no interest in like standing firm against evil spiritual powers. Doesn't sound fun to me. Like, can't I just like say no? Just not engage? Kind of like maybe those older women were sort of doing. Like, I just don't want to think about it. I want to talk about it. I just don't want to engage in it. But unfortunately, we can't excuse ourselves from the battle. It's just not an option, especially for those who are believers in Christ. So a few weeks ago, we talked about being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And we saw that scripture really portrays humans as, I'm going to use kind of a science fiction-y word here, but it's the best term I can come up with. We are cross-dimensional beings. Sorry, it's pretty sci-fi. What it means is we we inhabit the physical world, but there's a part of us that inhabits the spiritual world. Think of the soul. As I said in that sermon, uh, if you were to be autopsied, they couldn't pull your soul out and say, here's your soul. Here's the the component of you that we call soul. No, we have a soul, but it exists in this cross-dimensional space, in this spiritual realm. And so we have this spiritual part of us that can interact with the Holy Spirit, that can be seated with Christ in an unseen way. And this also means that the evil spirits in the heavenly places, as Paul calls them, can and do seek to attack us or influence us or be against us. And scripture affirms that all of humanity is impacted by this spiritual realm that interacts with this one. Paul writes in one place, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And in Colossians, he kind of fleshes that out. He says, you He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And so scripture sort of portrays in the spiritual places in the heavenly realms that we have the domain of darkness and the kingdom of light. And that everyone falls into one of those categories whether they know it or not. And we have to be strong in Jesus and have him be our protector and strength. We have to be aware of the enemy's strategies 
so we can apply the power of Jesus against his schemes. We have to put on spiritual armor, which Paul alludes to here, and we're going to talk about that in our final sermon in Ephesians next week. But for this sermon, let's just remind ourselves of the spiritual realities of the unseen world. Again, I, a lot of times churches don't like really talking about this because it makes you sound weird. I don't really love talking about it because it makes me sound weird, but Scripture says it. And if we're going to believe the whole counsel of Scripture, then we, we're going to go into it. That's, that's where we're going. So we're going to talk about what Scripture says about the spiritual world, and I just want to first address a myth that I think some people have. So I've talked to people who believe, well, all the talk about spiritual things in Scripture, it's only there because the people who wrote Scripture were superstitious and ignorant. So they saw, you know, all sorts of stuff going on, and because they didn't know any better, they just said, oh, that's all spiritual. And, and it really wasn't. There's, there's logical, you know, physical, uh, you know, explanations for this. So they'd say, well, all that, like, spiritual stuff is just superstitious, ignorant people believing a myth. But actually, that's a myth. Because the Romans and those who lived in the first century Roman Empire were a very reasonable people who loved logic and rationality. I'll give you an example of this. The Roman people rejected the idea of a resurrection, right, the resurrection of Christ. It was scoffed at and laughed at because there was simply no evidence that they'd ever seen that anyone had ever risen from the grave. Now, if they were just a superstitious, magical people, they would have loved the idea of a resurrection. They would have said, wow, that's so cool. You know, that really fits our magical way of viewing the world. We love that. But they didn't accept it. They couldn't believe something that seemed so outside of real life experience, something that they just lacked complete evidence for. So when the first century people talk in a matter-of-fact way about spirits and magic and curses, they're not just superstitious, ignorant people. They are convinced that there is a real power because there is real evidence of this power and it's evidence that these things exist. And although occultic magic was recognized as real, the ancient Romans for the most part did not see magical things as something good or something proper people dabbled in. Occult magic, you might not know this, occultic magic was outlawed in most of the Roman Empire. Not because they saw it as a superstition but because they saw it as dangerous. And occult magic practices in the Roman Empire uh, included things like curse tablets. So you could have someone write out a tablet that had a curse on it, and you could use it to curse your enemies. Or it had binding spells, or it had ritual incantations where you would channel a spirit, or a, you would think it was a god or goddess, and it had enchantments. And so that was occultic magic. Across the Roman Empire, it was pretty much outlawed, except for, as we'll see, in Ephesus. But all the writers of the New Testament acknowledge the spiritual realities of Satan and evil spirits. Paul, when addressing ministry in the Roman Empire, acknowledges this spiritual reality. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. He's talking, there's a spiritual battle that they're being engaged in. And then he also writes this, Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. So Paul is attributing some of the hard-heartedness of people to, to existing in the realm of Satan's domain. And the apostle John also affirms these things. He says, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And Peter says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I always remind people, Peter is talking to Christians here. He's not talking to non-believers or people who are in the domain of darkness. He's, no, he's talking to believers. Watch out. 
The devil prowls around looking to devour. And finally, just to reiterate this, but a significant portion of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons, this, this power encounter between the kingdom of light and the domain of darkness, right? It's all over the Gospels. And then he sends his 12 out, and he sends his 72 out, and the 72 come back amazed because even demons submit to them in Jesus' name. So all that to say, to ignore the spiritual world is to ignore a significant portion of the Gospels and Scripture, The Bible is clear that there is a spiritual world. It's all around us. It interacts with us. And we're not given a lot of details, but we we have to acknowledge that it exists. And if we look at the Gospels and the book of Acts, we see that not only is there this invisible spiritual world all around us, but that there is a battle there between evil and and light. And we're, we're involved in that. There's a visible and an invisible world that intersects, and we live in that intersection. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, I think for a lot of our culture, we tend to disbelieve the existence of demons. We are ignorant of the schemes of the enemy. Now, the believers in Ephesus who are receiving this letter from Paul, they're not like us. They are very aware of the existence of evil powers. So let's, I'll just give you a little bit of a backstory on the city of Ephesus. Ephesus um, was a city full of idol worship and spell casting and occult practices. It was outlawed in the Roman Empire, but Ephesus was the exception. And the believers in Ephesus don't need to be told that evil spirits exist. They need to know that Jesus is more powerful than the evil that exists because they've seen the power. They've seen the curse tablets. They've seen the binding spells. They've seen these things. And they, they're going, is Jesus just as powerful? And Paul says, Jesus is more powerful. He's above all of these things. So if you stand firm in him and in his mighty power, everything is going to be okay. But Ephesus was a city that was steeped in magic, occult, and, and goddess worship. Paul writes more in the letter of Ephesians about the spiritual world and about the reality of evil than any other letter, than any other letter he writes. And the reason for that is clear when you know the history of Ephesus. So Ephesus was dominated by its worship of the goddess Artemis. The founder and the protector of the city is what they believed. And Artemis's temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was this massive complex. It was gigantic. And Artemis was believed to wield great power over heaven, earth, and the underworld. And she was even called titles like Lord and Savior. I know it's like she was considered Lord, but that's how they termed it. Like she was the Lord overall. She was the Savior of the people. And it was believed that Artemis could protect her worshipers from evil spirits and help them avoid illness and injury. Now, the cult of Artemis dominated every part of life in Ephesus and the surrounding area. Clinton Arnold summarizes it like this. He says, The influence of this goddess and the cult attached to her permeated every area of life. The temple was the banking center for the city. Her image was on the coinage. A month of the year was named after her. Olympic-style games were held in her honor called the Artemisia. And she was trusted as the guardian and protector of the city. And uh, all those little round balls all over her body uh, are, are actually magic pouches. So they believe she had this magic power that she could tap into to protect people. And the worship of Artemis was occurring in a context that was highly interested in the spiritual realm. It was believed that spiritual powers would influence and interact with every sphere of life for good or for evil. This worldview in Ephesus 
just covered everything. Everyone was really involved in magic rituals and incantations and invocations to try and wield spiritual power to achieve positive outcome in life's challenges. Magic was a method of manipulating spiritual powers to accomplish tasks. And if you read Acts 19, you're going to see a pretty good example of what's going on in Ephesus. Acts 19 is, is the history of Paul in Ephesus. And we see some wild stuff going on in Ephesus. We have the seven sons of Sceva who are exorcists, try and go to drive a demon out of a man, but the demon is so powerful and says, I, I recognize Paul, but I don't recognize you. And the demonized man beats up the seven sons of Sceva. And after that, it says that the believers gathered their magical scrolls, right? So the curse tablets, the binding things, the enchantments, and they burned them. So we know that they were involved in, I mean, they had a, a mound of magical objects, to try and manipulate the spirit world, and they burned them. And after that, we see that there was an uproar in Ephesus because the, uh, the, the craftsmen of the idols um, got mad because as people became believers in Christ, they said, they're not going to buy their Artemis goddess anymore, and we're going to lose money. So there was a lot going on in Ephesus. And Ephesus had this, it was described like this, it was the metropolis for magic. Because even though the practice of magic was illegal in the Roman Empire, regarded as kind of socially deviant, it flourished in Ephesus because of the power of the Artemis cult. And so they had a reputation in the ancient world for being the place of magic. The magical and spiritual context of Ephesus is why Paul spends so much time in Ephesians talking about the spiritual world and talking about spiritual battles in this letter. Constantine Campbell, who wrote a commentary on Ephesus, says, the first thing to note about the letter to the Ephesians is that Paul doesn't contradict or disbelieve the spiritual forces that influence and interact with every sphere of life. But on the contrary, Paul acknowledges the spiritual forces as real. And secondly, the letter does not critique magical practices as though they lack power or couldn't deliver results. Rather, the letter sets Christ as superior to the powers and authorities, making it obsolete for the believers to resort back to old magical practices to manipulate spiritual forces. Paul's trying to get across to the believers that through their union with Christ, believers are connected to the one who rules over all powers. They've been delivered from the ruler of the power of the ear. They don't need to fear evil spirits and malevolent beings as long as they share in the Lord's armor and weaponry, which is effective and powerful protection for them. So what he's saying is Paul isn't telling believers, hey, don't worry about all that magic and evil spirit stuff. It's not real. It has no power. Because if it wasn't real, if it didn't have power, what Paul should have said is, don't worry about it. It's all superstitious, made-up stuff anyways. Don't worry about it. You don't need to think about it because it's not real. But he doesn't say that. He says, hey, stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. So in our modern churches, I think we swing between the two extremes that C.S. Lewis warns us of. Either our churches pay way too much attention to evil spirits, seeing a demon under every bush, and making the enemy far more powerful than he needs to be. I've seen that. I've seen churches that, I mean, everything is spiritual. They're constantly trying to cast out demons of people and places and things. And, uh, and sometimes I'm like, you know, I think you just need to, like, drink less coffee and get more sleep. Like, you know, like, calm yourself down a little bit. So I've seen that. And, and the problem when you, when you overemphasize the demonic, when you, when you overemphasize it and over-spiritualize everything, what you actually do is harmful. Because people do not receive the help that they really need through medicine, mental health support, and good therapy. That's the danger. And so we need to be really cautious that we don't paint mental health struggles as spiritual when they're not spiritual. I've seen people, and I've actually talked with people. There was a, a man who, um, 
his, his wife was like, I don't know what's wrong with my husband. Like, in the last five years, he's like a different person. He's, he's just depressed all the time. His thoughts make no sense. He's always confused. And she's like, it's got to be spiritual. And so I met with him, and I, I talked with him, and he kind of, you know, explained some of the things that were going on in his mind. And I said, I want you to go to your doctor and tell him everything you told me. He went to his doctor, he got on antidepressant medication, he got referred to a really good counselor. About two months later, his wife was like, it's like he's, a, he's, he's his old self again. He's, he's back to normal. So, but what would happen if, if we over-spiritualized it, right? We would be trying to pray the demons out of him when there's nothing there. And he would miss out on the help that he needed. So there's a real danger in overemphasizing the spiritual. But on the other extreme... Churches who ignore the spiritual world and evil beings become completely unaware of the spiritual realities in this world. Meaning we have Christians who are facing a spiritual battle and not even knowing that it's spiritual and not finding any help. So for example, you might have condemning thoughts racing through your mind, past sins being thrown at you, accusations of how you're undeserving of God's grace. This all takes place in the thoughts. And that can sometimes be a spiritual battle. But so many Christians are unaware of these realities that it's the last thing they think of. So they actually live defeated lives because they don't know that they're to stand firm in the Lord and and stand firm in his power and fight the attacks of the enemy. So as an example of this, there was an older lady that I was working with who, uh, who struggled with deep burning anger, although you wouldn't know it. Like when you met her, you're like, oh, she's like the most wonderful person in the world. Super sweet, super nice. And, uh, but then I started, she came to me for some spiritual direction, spiritual help, and we started working through some stuff. And, uh, you know, she was revealing, like, you know, I've been a Christian for, she got saved later in life, but she's like, I've been a Christian for 30 years now. I still have a really hard time praying. I have a really hard time reading scripture. Like, I do it out of obligation, but I don't really get anything out of it. Um, and then there was this anger thing that was revealed, and I was like, really, you angry? She's like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm constantly on the edge of anger. Ask my children how, how it was when they grew up. And what it really was, was their spiritual attack. And, uh, and we got her free of some of the lies that she had believed. We got her free of some of the, the ways the enemy had a hold on her. And her interior life was completely different because we exposed the work of the enemy to the light of Jesus. And she said after that, uh, and you know, I walked with her through this for a while. And so she said, these are her words, she said she grew more spiritually in the two years after she was free than in the previous 30 years she had been a believer. Not that the previous 30 years were wasted, but it was just a noticeable change in her relationship with God, her delight in his word, and her joy in in praying. And so it was the lies and the schemes of the enemy that were keeping her from abundant life in Christ. So Paul's main intention in writing this last section of the letter in Ephesus is to remind the believers in Ephesus that the spiritual realities around them are real. They need to be on guard. They need to stand firm in Christ against these forces. Paul says, put on all of God's armor so you'll be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. And so I guess that my takeaway is, oh, the devil has strategies against us? That's kind of a, you know, I don't want to be fearful, but I'm like, oh, that, that should shed some light on some things that we need to stand firm. Like, there's strategies against you. So what are these strategies? How does this all actually work? What do evil spiritual powers actually seek to do to us? Because although Hollywood movies tend to like to, to portray wild scenes of exorcism or demonic activity. I'm sure, I don't know if you've seen any of those, but I mean, they get pretty out of, out of hand and pretty wild. For the most part, spiritual attack is not that. It's not people levitating and beds shaking and doors slamming. It's not that. For the most part, spiritual attack is subtle, it's strategic, 
and it seeks to remain unknown. If the devil exposes himself, we know what to do. But if he remains hidden, right, we, we often have a hard time identifying is, you know, where is he at work? And so spiritual attack is often subtle, it's strategic, and it takes place not in physical manifestations, but in the thought life, in the interior life. So a few places of attack, just to kind of get us thinking in this direction is a preview for next, uh, next Sunday's sermon. One of the places of attack is, of course, temptation. In his role as the accuser, Satan tempts us. He's relentless in his endeavor to bring us under false guilt and self-condemnation. So here's how this can work. He can speak into the believer's mind or heart evil thoughts and desires, and then you know what he does? He taunts us with accusation. You call yourself a Christian, and yet you have these vile thoughts? So he kind of hits us from both things. He tempts us, but then he says, I can't believe you're even being tempted. What kind of Christian are you? There was a missionary who came to see a pastor one time because he was finding that every time he went to pray for his upcoming mission, he would have these vile thoughts intrude into his mind. They didn't happen any other time, only when he went to pray and only when he went to pray for the mission field that he was going to be sent to. And so he was certain that there was something wrong with him and maybe he was even demonized, that there was something on him. And a pastor met with him and prayed with him and said, there's really nothing wrong with you. The thoughts are a distraction from the enemy to keep you from praying and to hinder you in your work. And so I always tell people, remember that thoughts are not actions. And we can reject thoughts we do not like or know to be false. That's actually a key uh, principle of spiritual warfare is that it takes place in the mind and you need to make sure to identify lies and believe truth. To counteract lies with the truth of God's word. The next place that Satan attacks is condemning thoughts and accusations. So as the accuser, Satan is prone to bring up sin, even long past sin, and accuse us with it. Satan lies and he says, you say you're a Christian, but remember what you did. How can you imagine God forgives you? And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I know uh, myself and I know other people in ministry that there's often a point uh, that comes in their ministry work where they start to have old lies and sins dredged up. And and they start to hear the accusing voice of, remember when you did that? You were not qualified to lead the church. You're not qualified uh, to lead people in spiritual things because look at what you've done. So how do you counteract that? Well, you go to truth, right? If If there's truth in the accusation, we say this, that may have been true of me, but it's no longer true. If I confess my sin, God is faithful and just to cleanse me of my unrighteousness. I am washed clean by the precious blood of Jesus. He has put a new spirit in me. So when the accusation comes, you counteract it with truth. And the final place is just lies in general. All of this kind of falls under the category of lies. But Satan is primarily a liar, a deceiver, and much of his power comes from getting people to agree with his lies. They can be lies about your identity in Christ. He might say, you're not really loved by God. God doesn't care about you. They can be lies that plant doubt, right? The Bible can't really be trusted. Prayer doesn't really work. Or they can be lies about self-sufficiency. You don't need God. You don't need to be in church to pray, to worship, you know, whatever it is. We've got to counteract those lies with the truth. We tend to think of demonic activity, like I said, like horror movie stuff. You know, bed shaking, doors slamming, weird, paranormal phenomenon. But those demonic manifestations are rare. I'm not going to say they never happen. I'm just going to say they're rare. Because Satan is smart. He's a cunning deceiver. His tactics amongst believers tend to be more along the lines of having people dwell on thoughts of anger or bitterness, believing lies, feeling powerless against temptation, things we kind of all face every day. We also tend to imagine that spiritual attack is only against individuals. But there is often attack against the entirety of a church body, and I'll give you an example from Scripture. 
So in the Corinthian church, there was a man who had a situation of immorality. The church had disciplined the man, and the man had repented of his sin, and Paul had forgiven him. But the church in Corinth seemed to be holding the sin against him. They didn't seem to be responding positively to the man who had repented and asked for forgiveness. They were withholding uh, forgiveness and holding a grudge. And Paul affirms the man and, and urges the church to love him rather than harbor bitterness. He writes this. He says, I'm not overstating it. When I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me, most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us. For we are familiar with his evil schemes. And I think this is so interesting that, that amongst the body of believers, an instance of withholding forgiveness from a man who has sincerely repented, Paul goes, that is a scheme of Satan. That is going to drive the body apart. It's going to disunify the body. Be on guard against those things. He's like, so forgive him as I forgive him so that Satan will not outsmart us in this. Satanic schemes are designed to get a foothold into our lives through unforgiveness or other attitudes. And we see that, we saw that last week with anger, or a few weeks ago with anger. Paul says in Ephesians 4, we need to deal with anger quickly, lest the devil gain a foothold in us. So by holding on to ungodly attitudes, we allow the enemy to gain ground in our lives. And so I just ask people, you know, do a heart check. You know, where, where might the enemy be seeking to gain a foothold? Is there bitterness? Is there anger? Is there resentment? Is there repeated sin which remains unconfessed? Because Paul, Peter, and John all tell believers, watch out for the schemes and the strategies of Satan. And we're usually attacked through deceptive means, through ungodly attitudes, thoughts, behaviors, and secret sins. And if we're, sta- we're going to stand firm against the enemy, we need to shut the door to his gaining a foothold in our hearts. And allow the light and the truth of Christ to expose sin or ungodly attitudes, not to condemn us, but to make sure we walk in freedom, to make sure we walk in abundant life. And so this is our concluding point. We need to stand firm against the enemy. There's no choice. But we do not rely on our own strength, but we are to be strong in the Lord. So here's the truth we need to know. As believers in Christ, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. In Christ's power, we are undefeated. Because sometimes people are really afraid. This is the unhealthy uh, fixation on the spiritual things. People become very afraid of of the demonic and of the evil spiritual powers. And I just want to assure you, they have no power when when you are in Christ. When you stand firm in the Lord and in his mighty power, you have the power. It's not yours. It's Christ's. It's his power in you. And you can stand firm against every scheme of the devil. James, uh, so James, James says, resist the devil. <clears throat> Humble yourself, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. And so you can be assured of this. Paul assures us of this when he says back in Ephesians 1, <clears throat> where he says, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him the head over all things for the benefit of the church. And you're with him. You're with him there. 
So know this truth. Satan is a defeated foe. This means no matter how hard the struggle, no matter how powerful we might think Satan is, we win because Satan is already defeated. We have the victory if we stand firm in the Lord. I'm going to call the worship team up as I just close here. But I I do want to do just a, a gentle reminder that if we don't acknowledge the truth of what Paul describes here, if we open ourselves up to attack through ungodly attitudes or unconfessed and repeated sin, uh, we can live defeated lives. This isn't a salvation issue. This is an issue of are you living abundantly or are you living defeated? And so we need to apply our union with Christ to the battle we face. Make a conscious effort to be led by the Spirit of God and not your own flesh. Be renewed in your mind with the truth of God's Word and by His Spirit. And in the next sermon, we're going to see how our union with Christ and how the armor of God protects us. But today we remember that we fight this battle from a place of victory. The foe is formidable, but Jesus is invincible. And that is the truth that we stand on. Now, anytime I talk about this, you know, I get people who who come and talk to me like I have these thoughts, I have these dreams, I have these things. So if that's you, uh, feel free to email me or come and talk to me after the service. Um, But again, rest assured, Jesus is more powerful than any attack you face. I am, I am not at all worried about the enemy because Jesus has us. And as long as we stand firm in Jesus, we're going to be okay. You just need to be mindful. The reason I bring it up is Paul reminds the Ephesians, hey, there is a spiritual reality. There is a spiritual battle. There is things going on. The, the enemy seeks to devour and destroy you. So be aware. Don't be afraid, but be aware and stand firm in the Lord. Let me pray for you and then we'll worship together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the victory you have won, the victory over sin, over death, over Satan, that you are our champion, that in you and in your name, uh, we can have security and victory because you, you unite us with yourself. You are, you are working in us and through us. I ask Holy Spirit for those places of darkness, for those uh, agents of the enemy, those evil ones who seek to destroy and distract and and even devour us. Lord Jesus, would you let us be aware of them? Would you not let us be unaware, but would you let us see the work of the enemy so that we may stand firm against it and draw closer to you? And I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.